you're here with us this evening, let's begin turning to 1 Samuel chapter 24 on our journey through the Scriptures on Sunday night. If you're here with us this evening without a Bible, we'd sure like you to have one this evening to follow along with your own eyes. There are men coming up the aisle right now with Bibles. Just flag them down and they'll get one into your hands this evening. At the end of chapter 23, the Ziphites betrayed David's location with his men uh, to uh, King Saul. And so they kind of betray him uh, in that Saul uh, comes with a, a large contingent of men to come against David and his 600 men and very nearly has him in his grasp. And at that moment he gets news that the Philistines have invaded the land of Israel and so he is forced to pull off from his pursuit of David. And of course God is involved in all of those things. And when David uh, escapes from Saul under these conditions, we're told there in verse 29 of chapter 23, that then David went up from there and he dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. Uh, en Gedi is really a beautiful uh, part of Israel. And uh, I think it becomes... Uh, one of the favorite stops of anyone that uh, takes a tour of Israel. And it's located in the Judean wilderness, uh, very, very near to the Dead Sea, a very arid, dry part of Israel. And yet, there, because it is uh, so low in terms of sea level, there's a waterfall that comes rushing right out of the ground at En Gedi and beautiful fern gardens and vegetation and pools of water and animals, rock hyraxes and, and uh, ibexes and just all kinds of animal, birds, wildlife that is there. It's a beautiful place. It's also uh, advantageous for David, not only because he is able to access water there, also uh, wildlife for food, but it's a great hiding place. Uh, we'll see a little bit later in the chapter when David comes out and he confronts Saul and you think, wow, how can David be within talking distance of Saul and not have Saul's men just turn around and uh, get him? But when you go to En Gedi, there's a great ravine that uh, divides the spot near the fall. And if you're on one side of that ravine uh, with Saul and his men and David's on the other side, by the time you'd get 3,000 men across that ravine to get to David, David and his men would be long gone. Another advantage to this site for David is that he knew it very well. Uh, the water that flows out of En Gedi there uh, probably begins up in Jerusalem, makes its way through Bethlehem underground, these springs. And so David would have wa uh, uh, pastured his sheep, his family's sheep in the area of En Gedi. He knew the whole area like the back of his hand. Saul would have been at a tremendous disadvantage of trying to find him. One more advantage in all of this for David is that in that region there are so many caves. Lots of, he's got all these guys, they've got to, you know, get in out of the weather, they've got to hide themselves, and there's so many natural caves built into these uh, cliff sides and these mountain kind of sides that it was easy for them to hide. And so, uh, for several reasons, he makes his way there uh, to En Gedi, and En Gedi means the spring of a goat, and it's uh, 
very well named. It is a spring, and uh, you go there even today, and so many wild goats, ibexes that are roaming around. Now, it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. So he has evidently uh, defeated the Philistines, turned them back. Now he's ready to re-begin his pursuit of David. And it was told him, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000, notice, chosen men. These are special forces. He's using the very best in the army of Israel to try and find David and his men. So he took these 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and they went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. And so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs, and David and his men were staying in the recesses of uh, the cave. So uh, apparently what we've got here is I can just kind of lay it out for you. Uh, We're told that Saul uh, goes into this cave to attend to his needs. That's a euphemism for uh, going to the bathroom. Uh, whatever variety of going to the bathroom he is going to do, it requires the removal of his robe. That's all I'll say about it. Uh, But you get the picture. So he goes in. He's out in this very, very bright sunlight uh, of that Judean wilderness. He's with Abner. He's with these 3,000 men that are with him. And so he ducks in to use the restroom in this cave. And what he doesn't realize is David and at least some portion of his men are hidden away in that very same cave. So he removes his robe to do his business. And, uh, and, and no men go in with him as a bodyguard. He's not going to ask for that and nobody's going to volunteer that. He assumes he's found uh, an empty cave. So as he's using the restroom here in this cave, he is left completely vulnerable uh, physically. And so here David is going to have an opportunity to uh, kill Saul and bring an end to this very, very long, difficult trial that both he and his men uh, are in. And so he goes into the cave and the men of David that are with David, so we've got a little whispering thing going on here, and they said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you. So we can't believe this. This is such a God thing. What we're seeing right now, praise the Lord, you know. So, and, and now they're going to tell him in the name of the Lord what he ought to do. God's saying, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. David could have just taken a spear and just pinned him right to the wall as he was going to the bathroom. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So apparently he's laid this robe by the side. David goes over, and even though he's strongly urged to kill Saul, all he does is he cuts away the edge uh, of that uh, robe. Now, David's men, you can understand where they are. uh, They're going through the same trial that David is. Now, David is who Saul wants to kill, but he's going to kill anybody that's associated with David now. So here they are. It looks to them like David's just been delivered up on this silver platter by God. And they encouraged David, man, 
You don't get chances like this every day. You've got them absolutely vulnerable. Go ahead and take them out. This has to be uh, God's will. And so you put yourself in their place, and, and we, there would be a great tendency to think the same thing. Man, just one thrust of, the, of, of your spear, and all of our problems are over, David. And, and you'll, you'll get a chance to, to be uh, the king that God has called you to be. So they strongly urge him to end this trial by his own hand. I think one of the lessons that we learn here in this, and it's very practical, I think, is we really do have to be careful when we're in a long trial like this that's unjust, it's unfair, uh, it gets put into our hands to end the trial by, you know, doing damage to somebody else. We really have to be careful in these kind of deep trials uh, of the counsel that we receive from those that love us the most in life. Because very often what they'll do is what these men are doing here, and they know what we're going through, they know the problems that we're facing, they know the hardship, they know the price that you've paid in the middle of this trial, and they're not thinking so much about what would be godly counsel, they're just thinking what would be the fastest end to this trial. So they counsel him in this way. And I have found that when Christians in general get into a really hard, difficult trial, they're... uh, Boy, about half the time they're not even safe going to Christians to ask what they should do in it. Because we, we have this, instead of pointing people to God, pointing them to the Word, there's that we get all filled with emotion and we're just going to tell them what we think that they, they want to hear and it would have been a disaster. You think about what would have happened if David had taken his count, their counsel here and killed Saul. I think we all like the David who didn't kill Saul. I think we all like the David who became king when God took Saul out in his own timing and in his own way. And that David became the king of Israel without Saul's blood on his hand, without anybody wondering, would he really have become the king if he hadn't been the one to kill Saul? I think we like the David that left vengeance in the hands of the Lord. And the Bible tells us, God says, vengeance is mine. He's very possessive of that because he's the only one knows, that knows how to mete out vengeance righteously and, and in a, a way that is, is just right for the situation. And none of us have that kind of wisdom and none of us have that kind of self-control. And so uh, David here, he, he knows that he's going to be raised up as king. And uh, while they urge him to take it into his hands, uh, he refuses to do it. But he cuts the corner of Saul's robe. And it happened afterward that David's heart was troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. Now, there's a very tender conscience in this man. He, he's one rough guy. He kills giants and then cuts the head off. I mean, he can do some stuff. He, he, Saul kills his thousands. David kills his tens of thousands. But he's got a heart for God. And he's got a very tender conscience. And he respects the office that Saul holds. And, and he respects the position that God has exalted him into that place to such a degree that we, even when he cuts the man's garment, he doesn't want to have, uh, he feels like, I've gone too far. I've overstepped my bounds. Never ever be afraid of, of having too tender a conscience in these, in these things. 
maintaining a tender conscience before the Lord and, and in our lives. As he was troubled by it, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid, I'll tell you what the Lord says here, gentlemen, not what you told me to do. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed, he calls Saul, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. How was he the, the anointed of the Lord? Was the anointed of the does, David doesn't say, he's a great king, he's a wonderful king, he's a godly king, he's a holy king. He doesn't say any of that. But he does say he's the anointed of the Lord. What David looks at Saul and says, Saul became the king because the prophet Samuel anointed him on the behalf of God to make him king. Saul is God's problem. He's not my problem. The one that you want to take vengeance against. They are not your problem. They are God's problem. And they will never, ever take a single promise or a single plan that God has for your life and ever overrule it or destroy it. God's plan is going to be accomplished in each one of our lives as we just walk with Him. But He looks at Him and says, He is anointed. He is anointed by God. This is not my business. It is God's business to take out Saul whenever He wants to take out Saul and make me king as He has promised. And so... David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. So apparently David says to his men, listen, he is God's anointed. I am not going to kill him. So they probably said something like, okay, get out of the way. We'll kill him if you don't have enough sense. And so there's all of this emotion that is, is going on. And David, with these words, he's turning back. I mean, they just want to end this thing right now. And Saul got up from the cave and he went on his way and didn't even know what in the world it was that uh, had happened uh, around him within the cave. And so David apparently gives him some amount of time for he and his men to uh, get a safe distance from him. And he then arose afterward. He and his men came out of the cave. And he called out to Saul saying, My Lord the King! And then Saul, and when Saul looked behind him, David then stooped with his face to the, to the earth and he bowed down. And so he shows respect to Saul for his uh, position. And so he gets Saul's attention here and, and uh, shows this, uh, this respect. And so uh, Saul, and when Saul looked behind, well, I already said that, didn't I? Let's see, verse 9. And David said to Saul, his speech to him, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And, David, and Saul could apparently recognize their standing in the cave that he just came out of uh, minutes ago. And someone urged me to kill you. Six hundred someones inside this cave. But my eyes spared you, and I said... I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, so he uses this, uh, refers to Saul as his father. It could be a term of just politeness and again respect. But the fact of the matter is, because of his marriage to Michael, one of Saul's daughters, uh, David was uh, Saul's, uh, one of his son-in-laws. And so he says, moreover, my father, see, look, yes, see the corner of your robe that's in my hand, for 
in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. And so he uh, pulls out this section of the robe and he points it to him and uh, says, this look familiar to you, kind of. And Saul looks down and he sees he's missing that section of his robe. Uh, he knew he had laid it down in the cave, and so he's tracking with David 100%. And what David is essentially saying, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what David is communicating to Saul, and he understands it, is, I could be holding your head just as easily as I'm holding this corner of your robe. I had you to, to kill in, in this uh, cave. And so he offers it as an evidence that I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. And because I didn't kill you, I am no danger to you at all. And so he said, let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And so David does a very important thing, same thing that we're exhorted to do as Christians in the New Testament, and that is we are to leave vengeance to God. God is very, very good at what he does. See, the problem with me taking vengeance is I'm always like two hours early earlier than God, two days earlier, two weeks, two years earlier. He's going to get to it. I tell you, and, and, and I bear witness to the fact, and I've walked with the Lord uh, 29 years now, and I, there are situations that I see in people's lives and in my own lives that we're currently in the middle of circumstances and they're still developing. But in all situations that I have ever witnessed as a Christian and as a, as a pastor in the body of Christ, I have never known God not to win in a single situation. He certainly takes His time, but He always wins. He never needs our help. And He certainly never needs our help in the area of vengeance. That's why, again, he's possessive of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He will repay. That's the promise. Somebody say, oh man, oh, I could, oh, I would, I want it. Oh, nobody could do it better than I would do it, right? God said, you don't have to sweat that. I know how to repay wrongdoing. I will do it. Leave it to me. Sometimes we think we leave it to God. Oh, he's going to let another one. He's such a softy. Like that Pilbury doughboy. You poke him in the stomach and he tickles and we just go on. And, but he's not. He can, he can play hardball. And, and especially when you're coming up against his children and his plan for his children's life. And so David uh, calls on, says, I'm not uh, going to get involved in, in any of this. I'm not going to raise my hand against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. And so Saul was clearly doing wickedness to David. David did Saul good in this situation. So basically he's saying, you know, my good to you reveals that I am not the wicked man that you think that I am, but still my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? 
Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? David's saying, I'm not worth the effort. I'm not worth the aggravation. Taking these men and, and over hill and dale every few months you're trying to find me, there's hardly anything in life more worthless than a dead dog, is there? What do you do with them? You find, I mean, you, you could stuff them, but if they don't belong to you, there's no emotion. They're useless. So he's saying, I'm, I'm of no value. And there's hardly anything that's, you know, smaller or more harmless than a, uh, insignificant, I should say, than a flea. So he says, you know, you'd, I, I, I'm a wa- it's a waste of time what you're trying to do with me. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So, uh, again, we look at David and, and uh his decision here, and we realize that he has made the right decision. It's a decision that we like him making. It makes him kind of the hero of the story, and we like God's people to be the hero of the story. And he does something very important here, and that he gives God the time to do what God wants to do in the situation. And God very often can take a lot longer to deal with a situation than we like. And so it was when David finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Picture of instability, I'd say. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. Hello, anybody heard the word repent? I mean, when you understand this, what do you... Come on! And you have shown this day how you dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know. Now, he's saying this in front of all of his men, all of David's men, all of the men that he, 3,000 men that he's got uh, with him. Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And so they split off from one another, departed from one another, and uh, uh, Saul does everything here but repent. He confesses his sin. He confesses he's wrong. He confesses that David's going to be the next king. But he won't repent. And the word repent means have a change of mind that results in a change of direction. The Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. There is a sorrow that Saul has. Saul is very, very sorry here. There's a sorrow that I can have over how I've wasted my life. There is a sorrow that I can have over my decision-making. There is a sorrow that I can have over the consequences of my sin. None of that is a godly sorrow. A sorrow that comes from God will always translate into repentance. I will turn from the direction, ungodly direction that I'm going in, and then I will change that direction and now do what is right. And so Saul's feeling all kinds of emotion on this scene, 
He's feeling all kinds of sorrow, but he refuses to repent here, which is the single great thing that that he needed to do. And so they split off. They will meet uh, again a little bit later. And then Samuel died, chapter 25, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and they buried him in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So here is Samuel. He dies, and with the death of Samuel, we've been with him a long time. The book's named after him and his ministry. But with the death of Samuel is the end of an era, a significant era in uh, the history of the nation of Israel. And the death of Samuel brings an end to the period known as the Judges. And when he dies, there's a great lamentation for him. And uh, the, the word is it talks about the, the fact that the nation lamented for him. The word lamented, it means to tear the hair. It means to beat the breasts in, in sorrow. And I mean, it's to wail and really have a deep, deep mourning over, uh, over the, uh, the death of someone. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous is blessed. But the name of the wicked will rot. <laughs> Solomon had a way, didn't he, of putting that together? The name of the righteous is blessed. And so here he, uh, this great sorrow of the nation over the loss of this uh, great, great man, and he passes off of, off of the scene. I think about Samuel, and he's one of the heroes of mine in the Bible. I always love it when I'm reading through the Scriptures and I come to these, uh, this section of the Bible that speaks of him. And one of the things that I love so much about him is he walked with the Lord all the way through his life. And it wasn't easy. He was given, born to two very godly parents, Elkanah and Hannah, dedicated to Eli the priest to begin to serve the Lord at a very, very young age. And while he's serving as, as a, a kind of an assistant to the high priest Eli, there surrounding the things of, of the tabernacle, he is exposed to the wickedness and the hypocrisy of Eli's sons. And then he is called to walk with the Lord and to serve the Lord in a time of generally terrible apostasy on the part of God's people toward, toward the Lord. And, and he is forced to live for the Lord and, and minister for the Lord through all of the people's rejection of the Lord as their head, desiring a human king instead. He's, he walks with God. He's faithful to God through this crazy old king because of his own sin that has become the first king of, of Israel. And yet through all of this stuff, nothing moves him from his relationship with God. He never ceases to be a man of prayer, never ceases to be a voice for God in his nation, never ceases to be an influence for the Lord uh, among the nation, all the way through his life. And one of the things that I like, and especially for younger people, but for everyone, is that Samuel comes off of the pages of Scripture and, and reveals to us that we can walk with God and be faithful to God individually, no matter what a nation is doing or a school is doing or a city is doing or the rest of the body of Christ is doing. It's interesting, you read what the Bible says about the condition, what will be the condition of professing Christianity. I don't say Christians. I say professing Christianity in the last days. It is a terrible picture 
of apostasy and partial obedience. It's a, it's a picture of Saul, living a life of Saul, but thinking I'm right with God. And I look at the day in which it appears that you and I have been called to live for God, and I mean, and, and many of you have faced it already. I mean, I understand persecution from the world. I understand rejection from the world. I, I understand ridicule from the world for being obedient to God and to His Word. Where it hurts the most is when it comes from another Christian or comes from a Christian within your, a professing Christian within your family or at your church or in your home fellowship. And they come in and mock you for the stand that you make for the Lord. And I think all of us need to realize that we live in a time in human history where we really do have to, as the old song goes that we sing, though uh, none go with me, still I will follow. Will you walk with God all the days of your life if you have to walk with Him alone? If nobody else in the world was a Christian, do you have that kind of a commitment to the Lord that you would do that no matter what? That's the commitment that Samuel had. And I really respect him so much for it. I think about years ago I was doing on a Sunday morning a a series of uh, messages on different characters in the Bible, different character studies. And I remember teaching on Samson. And of course, Samson was one of the judges and he played with sin and he ended up, of course, you know, uh, failing very, very badly. And, uh, but the Lord had grace for him it, it, after his repentance and all, gave him a second chance to fulfill God's ministry in his life to judge the Philistines. And I remember speaking in that message and saying that the the single greatest uh, revelation or expression of God's grace is His forgiveness of sinners. Forgiveness of our sins. It allows us to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I said, I think the second greatest revelation of, of God's grace is His willingness to come alongside us after we failed with our repentance and to pick us up and dust us off and, and move us along in our Christian life. I don't minimize that because I've experienced that in my own life. All of us, I think, have to one degree or another if we've walked with the Lord for more than four weeks. So that's a beautiful expression of grace. But I got in my car and I started to drive home. And... Uh, the Lord said, uh, Damien, let's, talk, let's think that one through a little bit. The Lord does that. I mean, He's really something. I know so many of you, you want to catch me maybe after the service and set me straight, and you say, no, he, I, I think He listens to God. I think God will get through to Him. God does. He's got me on a leash. It's about got two chains in it, right, like that. He's about to take one of them out. <laughs> moment. And the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, those are wonderful expressions of my grace. And the, and the finest and the loftiest, most beautiful expression of my grace is in the salvation of sinners. But the second one is the grace that I give in the form of the power of my Holy Spirit for people to live an obedient, godly life for my glory in this world. And then third is the grace that I lavish upon my people when they fall. 
I think that sometimes we think of God's grace almost solely in the context of forgiveness. And it is wonderful when it's expressed in forgiveness. But God's grace in, in a more a higher form that glorifies Him even more is the grace that He bestows upon us to live an obedient, godly life all the days of our life like Samuel did. And I want to say that to every young person, especially in this room. So often, you know, people come to know the Lord and everything, and, and you know, I was a hell's angel, you know, and let me show you this scar right here, and I got a tattoo right over here, and everything got a gunshot wound right here. Somebody come to God. Somebody else says, well, you know, I did all this stuff. I was in the gutter, and I know God can save to the uttermost and the guttermost. And He can. I'm not putting that down. So all these things, and they hear the testimony, and here's this, you know, young person. They've been raised in the church and said, what kind of a testimony do I have? I mean, I haven't been even punched, let alone shot at or hit. Who's going to be impressed with my life? You know, I've been raised in the church and I've walked with God all the days of my life and everything. And all these other people get all of the attention. You have the greatest testimony. If you continue to walk with God all the days of your life. Some of us, we're dealing with half testimonies. We're dealing with remainder testimonies related to our lives. You have an opportunity in knowing God young and then walking with Him all the days of your life to put out in front of the whole world the greatest testimony of all and the thing that gives the greatest hope of all. The ability that God is not only great in His grace and forgiveness, which we praise Him for, but that He is great in His grace, giving us the power not to sin, but to live an obedient life. I love Samuel for all of that and more, but this is an overview of the Scriptures, uh, or at least we endeavor to do that. So let's move on to verse 2. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And so uh, he's just right about three and a half hours. He's right over here on the coast. But it says he's rich. I mean, he's right there. He's not from Salinas. So this isn't Mount Carmel, which is all the way in the north of Israel. This is a Carmel that's down in the south. In fact, it's right up uh, uh, where you've got uh, the Judean mountains coming up against the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which is desert. And so it's kind of an arid area. So he had a business in Carmel. He was very rich. And here's his riches. He had, uh, as a part of his riches, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, if you had a handful of each, you were a very wealthy person in those days. This guy is off the graph wealthy in terms of, of what it is that, that he has here. And so, he was shearing his sheep there in, uh, in uh, Carmel. And so, uh, the uh, time of the, of the shearing of, uh, of the sheep uh, was... a. Um, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. The name of the man was Nabal. Now, Nabal, the name means fool. Probably not his given name. So his mom and dad didn't say, well, what's he look like to you when he's born? So it's probably a name that he picked up as like a nickname somewhere along the way that stuck. We're not even saying that he used it about himself. 
Maybe it was just a name that was used concerning him, or maybe he had a name that was something like that and then rhymed with it and they began to call him this. And so that's what his name was, uh, Nabal, and, uh, and he, we're going to see that he uh, really lived down to his name. He really was, uh, was a fool. So he has this tremendous uh, wealth, He's a, and, 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 but his name is Fool. And he's got this wife, though. We're talking about riches. And he was really rich in the wife that he had. And her name was Abigail. The, word, the, na- the name Abigail means, my father is rejoicing. So evidently, when she came out of the chute and they delivered her, he's doing some kind of a dance in the waiting room, handing out bubblegum cigars to everybody. He's excited. So maybe, she, maybe he had like seven sons already, finally got a daughter. But anyway, the, here is, she's named after the excitement of her father at her birth. And not only did she have a beautiful name, but the Bible says that she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. And so she had uh, great intelligence. She had even more than great intelligence. She had uh, tremendous wisdom. She had the ability to look at situations, receive information, process it in, in a way that was very, very smart and very, very wise. And so uh, she's got quite a brain. And then we're told that she was a woman of beautiful appearance. The Hebrew uh, word for beautiful appearance there, it carries the idea of something that is gazed upon. In other words, this woman is so beautiful that whether in a marketplace or she walked into a room, she just, she was a showstopper. She just, everything stopped. And you just, you look, you just say, that is an incredibly beautiful person. That's the kind of uh, looks that she had with this uh, great intelligence. Impossible not to notice her beauty and to admire it. We're going to see she's also a very, very spiritual person. And I think that beautiful people need to be spiritual people or they're going to get eaten alive in this, uh, this world. So Nabal is a man who's not only blessed materially, he's blessed in terms of marriage. Now you say, how in the world, we're going to see Nabal, he's just a terrible guy. How in the world is a guy like Nabal getting Abigail? Uh, I don't know, I did it. How'd you you do it? I could tell you my story. (laughs) Not everything's in my notes. Probably an arranged marriage. So here he is, he's very wealthy, these things are arranged when you're very young. And so she ends up, you know, getting into a marriage that she's going to be fairly excited to get out of once, uh, but the proper way, once it, once it does uh, happen. And so, but the man, he was harsh and he was evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. And so the idea is that he was a really hard man to deal with. He's just kind of a pain in the neck. And so nobody really thought very highly of him. He was the kind of guy that got the... He, he got the best of every situation that he involved himself in. So you, you make a lot of enemies in life and that, that kind of a thing. But that's the kind of guy that he was of the house of Caleb. Caleb's one of the heroes of the Bible. He, know, he has nothing of his, uh, his, you know, his predecessor's uh, godly character. And so David sent ten young men. And again, the time of the shearing of the sheep, that was the equivalent for ranchers or sheep herders, goat herders. That was the equivalent of the harvest time for a farmer. 
So when the farmers would bring in all of the grain and bring in all of the crops, it was a time, as we saw with Ruth and Boaz, it was a time of great celebration. A lot of people had worked hard all year long for this to happen. And so you would have this feast. Everybody would eat well. It would be a celebration. Anyone who had a part in the prosperity of that year, you would bring into that feast and you would just bless them as a common courtesy, as an acknowledgement. I recognize the part that you played in all of this. Well, what was true of the farmer was also true of the rancher here. So the time of the shearing of the sheep, that was a time where they'd have a big feast and everyone who played a part in in the prosperity of of the year would be invited into this feast. And David and his men, they weren't invited in. And so he sent ten young men, which gives us an idea of how generous he expects Nabal to be to him in what he's going to give that's going to require ten young men. Uh, to carry it away. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So tell him that I have, I have sent you. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, greet him with a very, very gracious, polite way. Say to him, peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. And so just pronounce peace and blessing uh, uh, upon him. And so what David is wanting to do here is he's going to make a request of Nabal, but he doesn't want Nabal to feel like he's, you know, trying to trap him or, or you know, coercing him into giving something. And so he, he said, here's the, the message I want you to carry. I have heard that you have shears and your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel, ask your young men and they will tell you. So David just tells Nabal, just want to let you know what we've been doing for the last few months. Uh, we've been guarding your sheep. We've guarded them from the Amalekites. We've guarded them from the Philistines. We've guarded them from wild animals. You had your men out there and they were watching them, but we came alongside. And, as, and we're going to see in a few verses where one of the servants of Nabal says, these 600 men were like a wall between us and any kind of enemy to our flock. They were tremendous, the protection that they gave. Now remember, David is an old shepherd. So he doesn't have to learn about shepherding. He doesn't have to worry, uh, try to, you know, go to Wikipedia and learn about what a danger is to a sheep or anything like that. All he's going to do is just come on the scene and whatever it is that he used to do for his own flock, he's going to tell his men to do for the flock of Nabal. So he's offered protection for Nabal. Now, even, even if conservatively, uh, David and his men have protected those sheep and, and those uh, goats from a 3 to 5% loss that Nabal would probably expect to have with flocks that size. David has literally saved Nabal hundreds of animals from either being stolen or destroyed by wild animals. And so he's just saying, listen, these are the things that we uh, did for you. You can ask your young men. I'm not, I'm not telling you anything that they won't verify. And David really understates all the hard work that his men had done for Nabal. One of Nabal's servants is going to let Abigail know in a full measure in just a few verses. And so here's his request. Let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. And please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. And so he's asking, listen, it's been a good year. We've been a part of that. 
Whatever you decide that you would like to give to us, David is just asking, he's not asking for anything extravagant. He doesn't say, listen, this is what we're due. It's just, we're hungry. We've done you a good deed. Is there any grace in your heart to take care of us in all of this? And again, it's really, Nabal knew all about what David and his men had been doing. It's a real affront that he didn't invite them already to the, to the feast that they were going to have. And so, he said, you do whatever it is that comes to your hand. And so when David's men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited then for Nabal's answer. And then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? So he, he, he pretends that he doesn't know David, but he knows David enough to know that he's the son of Jesse. And he knows David enough to know that there's a division between David and Saul because he goes on and says, there are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his uh, uh, masters. And so uh, here is Nabal, and what Nabal does here is he, he insults David. Not only does he refuse uh, to give anything to David, but now he's going to insult him. So he knew a lot about David. Who does David think that he is? David's a nobody with no future. And he blames this whole rift between Saul and David on David. It's all, you got, I know what it is to deal with rebellious servants and this kind of thing, and David's just one of those of, of that ilk. And so he believes the worst about David because it, it served his own selfishness to do that. And so in verse 11 he says, Shall I, and there's a lot of I and my in this verse, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men whom I, this guy's got an eye problem, whom I, when I do not know where they are from. And so he, he says, this is, all of this belongs to me and I am not sharing it with riffraff like David and, and his uh, men. This is just pure selfishness on, on his part. And so David's men, they turned on their heels. Wow. I mean, they just look at this. This isn't going to be good. To a 180, turn on their heels, and uh, they went back. They didn't say a word to Nabal. They came and they told David all of the words that uh, had been said to him. So they don't say anything to Nabal because what do you say in the face of that kind of uh, ingratitude in, in and, and selfishness? It was David's thing to do. And so David's young men, they went back, told him, and David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. Get your weapons. And so every man girded on his sword. You can just hear it going right through the camp. Everything's getting the weapons. getting up. What's going on, you know? We're going to go kill somebody. And so every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 then stayed behind at, at the supplies. Now one of the young men, one of the servants of Nabal, uh, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, informed her of the events, and, 
and uh, said, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and, and made this request. And Nabal uh, responded to him by reviling him. And so he, he lets him know, she, he lets her know about the insults and the disrespect that uh, Nabal had shown to David. When David gets upset, and he flashes here, and it's a really bad scene, but that's, it, it's what we learn. It, it happens, and we're all going to recognize ourselves maybe to some degree or another in this passage. But what, what really make, makes David angry here, and it's not a righteous anger, what makes him angry here is not that Nabal was unwilling to feed his men. It was the insults that he hurled against uh, David, the disrespect that he showed uh, to David. Now, David, remember, David's not 75 years old, where it's hard to get somebody riled up about much. David's a very young man, and he's a very young man leading a group of very young men. And they have just, he has just been disrespected in front of his men. And so he gets very upset with all of this. And now he's uh, 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 going to come out and he's going to, to, uh, to kill, um, uh, to endeavor to kill Nabal and to kill all of, all of his uh, servants. So he, but the servant said, but the men were very good to us and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. And they were like a wall to us, both that night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. And now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. I couldn't approach him. There's no talking to him. You know that as his wife. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For this, for he is such a scoundrel, literally the son of Belial, the son of the devil, that one can't speak to him. So this servant knows how David's going to respond to the insults that's been shown to him if David is like anyone that's alive in those days. And he said, this guy's going to come back and he's going to kill our master and he's going to, he's going to be the death of all of us. He's going to kill every, every young man, every servant that, that belongs to Nabal. And, and indeed, that's exactly what David is planning on doing. You look at David and his reaction to the disrespect and the insult that he's been shown here. And uh, where now he's not only going to kill the source of the insult, but now he's determined that he's going to kill all of his servants. That's crazy. That's, that's just, he just going way, way over what the response should be. He shouldn't even kill Nabal. And now he's going to shed all kinds of innocent blood. I mean, he's just, he just full of the flesh. He's just full of his anger. And he's just about to do something just crazy that's going to harm other people and, and something he's going to regret for the, the rest of his life. And so David's response here, he's out nabling Nabal. He's out being a fool. He's out fooling not, you know what I'm saying? Even Nabal. Nabal's a fool. David's being a bigger fool in all this. He's dropped down to, not only dropped down to Nabal's level, but he's dropped down even lower than Nabal's level in this. It is interesting to me, and I think it's an important lesson for men, 
and especially young men, but all men, and not just men, but women also. It's interesting how patiently, like David, we can endure the insults of Goliath. We can endure the weeks and months and years of insults and disrespect by Saul's. And it never makes us flash in this way. But the one that gets us is the fool that comes out of nowhere in life. The one that takes us by surprise. You look at David and you think, how could a guy that is enduring the treatment that Saul is dishing out to him day after day, month after month, year after year, he does that and he, and he remains spiritual in all of it. This fool comes out of nowhere and he flashes and he's going to do something crazy that he would have never done with Saul. Because when you face a Saul and you face a Goliath, you're ready for him. You wake up in the morning and you know, these are the guys that are trying to get me. And you pray about it. And you prepare yourself that day for it. And so when those come along, we address them or we deal with them in a spiritual way. It's the fool that's riding down the freeway or on the streets of Modesto or hits us in some other place that we're not looking for, and they show us some kind of disrespect that causes us to flash and puts us in danger of ending up behind bars for the rest of our lives. It's the fool that comes out of nowhere that you have to be careful of. The Bible says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, there's the recognition that there are fools in life. And all you're going to get out of a fool is foolishness. And when you get foolishness out of a fool, don't come down to their level, but instead commit them to the Lord. Someone says, didn't Jesus say we weren't allowed to call anybody fool and you're telling us that there's fools? I'm just telling you there are fools. I'm not telling you to call a person a fool. What Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you know, don't, if, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hell fire. By the time, it is, okay, let's put it this way. It is a-okay to be going along in life at school, somebody does something on an athletic field, on a highway, on a road, anywhere in life, at Thanksgiving Day, at a family reunion, for someone to say something and do something, and it's words of disrespect out of the mouth of a fool, to look at it and say to yourself as a, as a spiritual assessment, that man is a fool. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. I am free to assess someone and come to the conclusion based upon what they're saying or doing that they are a fool. Jesus says, don't call them a fool because once you call them a fool, you are no longer in the dispassionate assessment mode. Next thing you know is you call them a fool and somebody's going to have a gun somewhere, they're going to have a knife somewhere, something's going to happen. So we've moved beyond what Jesus... Now we've moved to where Jesus says not to do that. 
And so somebody comes and they do something foolish. And I'm telling you, it, I, I, think, I think about our highways most of all, but where I work, I'm around Christians most of the time, so I'm not in the world. I don't know what your workplace is, so you know what your illustrations are. There's a lot of foolishness going on out there. There's a lot of disrespect that goes on. I see these guys that are just, they think they're the blue angels on the freeway. I say, man, listen, we're just going to move and they're not going to see you fast enough and we're going to have ten people dead on this freeway. I just have to look at it and say, that person is a fool. And I can't come down to their level in dealing with them, start to chase them or whatever it might be. So I don't come down to their level. I commit them to God. That's how I'm supposed to deal with a fool. Don't deal with a fool. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Now I have to confess that sometimes I'll see these guys doing this kind of thing or somebody else doing disrespectful or they'll show disrespect toward me or something like that or other people and I think to myself, hurry on, hell ain't half filled. That's, that's in First Fleshalonians. And I have to just repent and pull back. But I can't tell you, and the reason, I, the reason I emphasize this is it really helps me. I, I hate disrespect toward people. I hate it directed toward me. I hate disrespectful people. I don't hate them, but I dislike disrespecting people that way. I can really flash on this. My mind goes back to this. And that verse will come, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't leave that person to God. Somebody, somebody, God will win in that situation. But he's not going to use your foolishness to win against a fool. And the problem is, like with David, is I got a fool inside of me that can outfool the Nabal. I got a fool in me that's bigger than anyone that's driving on any road in California or on any athletic field in Modesto or in any school in Modesto or any workplace in Modesto. And so I need to remind myself, you don't come down to their level to deal with them. You commit them to the Lord. And then if we really want to be like Christ, we pray for them. Where Jesus on the cross, everything has to come back to Christ. Where Jesus on the cross, surrounded by men and women who are doing the most foolish thing in human history. And he cries, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's how you deal with fools. They exist. Don't come down to their level but commit them to the Lord. And if you can pray for them in that instance, then it's an indication that you're on safe ground. This world is getting crazy. So unthankful, so disrespectful, so violent, all these things. This stuff's just going to, it's going to just continue to tweak us until the Lord comes back. And this is an important lesson for how to deal with it. 
And so this is what David does. He's going to come in and try and mess with this thing. And the servant tells Abigail about what's happening. Abigail recognizes the danger of the situation. So she made haste. She took 200 loaves of bread, just like you have hanging around, you know, just in your kitchen. and all. Gives you an idea of how much food they had for this feast. That She could take 200 loaves of bread and Nabal didn't even miss it. Took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, that's dessert, and 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. She said to her servants, take these things before me, see I'm coming after you, but she didn't tell her husband Nabal. So she sends the gift out ahead of her so that when the gift comes to David, his heart will be softened, his anger will be softened, before she gets there, then to try and calm him down and what she's going to say uh, to him. And so it was that when she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. She meets them. I mean, they're moving fast now and there's, there's going to be some bloodletting. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all, this fellow, all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. And, and so this is what it, uh, he, he's done to me. May God, he's, he's going along, he's trying to rationalize what he's doing. You ever do that? All right, this is, oh man, I, I, I'm in perfectly right in what I, so he's trying to rationalize the whole thing. And he says, may God do so. And, and he, he's trying to convince himself that what he's doing here is righteous. This is what God would want me to do to teach him a lesson. And may God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all those who belong to him by morning light. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey. She fell on her face, position of humility, way different than her, uh, than her husband. Now, here's another lesson here. We'll get done about midnight, so just relax on things. I'm, I'm moving right along. I'm in control. Uh, we're going to see concerning Abigail, she's nothing like her husband. Nothing like her husband. I don't know how long they've been married. Probably been married a long time. And, and, and so often you have a marriage where you've got one spouse is righteous and the other is a Nabal, they're a fool. And Abigail lives with this fool and she does not become like the fool that her husband is. And it's so important when we're in a, in, in a marriage relationship or something like that or a close relationship and the person is a Nabal, to do whatever it takes to resist being coming like them and like their flesh and what they are and to remain a spiritual person. And that's what she does here. So she fell at his feet and she said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. She said, This was all my fault. If I had been there, I'd have taken care of it. And would you allow me to say a couple things to you? She said, please let not my Lord reg regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal, or folly, or fool is his name, and folly is with him. Listen, guys, if you don't think your wife knows who you are and what you are, your core, after a week of marriage... 
then you don't know women very well. She knew her husband very well. He said, this is kind of disrespectful that she's showing. And, and, and she's just being honest about him. But you have to realize what she's also trying to do here, which is very noble, is she's trying to, to save her husband's life at this point. So she knows he's dead in terms of as things go. So she's trying to do This is a classic Maybe the greatest example in all of the Bible of a soft answer turns away wrath. And so she says, Folly was, it, was with him, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and God is alive, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and avenging yourselves, uh, yourself with your own hand. This is called the presumptive sale. She's already telling him you're not going to do it. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And so she just kind of uh, deftly uh, encouraging David not to avenge a, a fool's provocation. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. And she, she says, in essence, she's saying it's not much, it's not worthy of you, David, but it might be worthy of the young men that are following with, with you. And I mean, again, just tremendous uh, tact and, and real skill. She is really showing, as God said, not only is she beautiful, which that's going to be bear, borne out because David's going to marry her before the chapter's over, but also we see all the way through the chapter the tremendous uh, wisdom uh, and understanding that she has. She said, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. She does three things with David here that's very interesting. And number one here in verse one, she tries to get David to slow down and get the big picture. When you're angry like David is, you're seeing about that big. And she reminds David, David, you are called by God to be the next king of Israel. And you're about to do this. And she's going to talk him down from this. Let's think this through. It would be like the President of the United States getting in a fist fight with some uh, Yahoo at a Little League baseball game. Somebody would come along and say, Hey, listen, you are not like all of the other parents at this. You are the President of the United States. You've got to be thinking a little bit bigger than you're thinking here. And so that's what she's trying to do in a very gentle way. David, God didn't raise you up he didn't give you 600 men to become a part of your army that are going to become your, your great army. He hasn't given you all those promises, hasn't protected you all this period of, of your life to this point so you can take all of that under the, the influence of your flesh and do whatever you want with it and throw it all away. You've got to have some sense of proportion here, David. The bigger picture. Now the application for us, we look and say, well, David's going to be the king of Israel, and of course he has to conduct himself in a way that doesn't, he just can't be getting in the flesh this way. We have a higher title than David is the king of Israel as Christians. 
Because the Bible teaches that we are ambassadors for Christ. There's no higher title in life to carry. And so this whole flash and the anger and the everything, how wonderful it is when God sends His Abigail, the Holy Spirit, or some physical person to come alongside us and say, Damien, hey, you mind if I talk with you? And let's just walk through this a little bit and see this in the light of the big picture. And that's what she's trying uh, to do here. Tremendous. She'd have, she would have made a fabulous uh, uh, you know, biblical counselor. And, and then she said, Yet a man, verse 29, has risen to pursue you and to seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And so maybe she's, she reminds him, Saul's trying to kill you. Goliath tried to kill you as she references the sling. Everybody that's tried to kill you has been unsuccessful. Hasn't God done a great job of defending you in His call upon your life? And now you feel a little Nabal catches you and blindsides you, the fool that surprises you, and you feel like you've got to rise up and defend yourself? We don't need to do it. God knows how to defend us. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged Himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. David, you're going to be a king one day. And if you kill these people tonight, you will look back for the rest of your life with the tenderness of conscience that you have and the quietness of your heart. And this will be a, a this will pain your conscience for the rest of your life if you do this, and it will be it will tarnish your legacy. David, think. Put this thing out. Give it some time. Think about what you're doing in the light of, of all this. You're gonna, you will live to regret this if you do this thing and you take vengeance into your own hand. Now, do you like the David in the Bible that listens to Abigail and doesn't slaughter Nabal and his servants? Or would you like David better if he went in and had all that blood on his hand and became the king of Israel ultimately? We like the David who left vengeance with God. Now take the situation in your life with the fool that you deal with and apply it to your situation. And the person that you will want to be, the person that you will like the most, the history, the legacy that you will enjoy the most is the one where you leave vengeance to God and let Him take care of your enemies. And so she says, this is all that's going to happen here and, and you're going to be great, all these things. And so it, I, I, we, I, I, we don't want your conscience or your legacy to be affected. Think about it, David, a little bit. And then when you become the king, remember your maidservant and the good that I tried to do to you this evening. And David then said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day uh, to meet me. And he praised the Lord. 
he's going to praise her for the wisdom that she speaks, spoke to him, but the first thing he's going to do is praise God for sending her. David is doing this in front of 400 men. Again, you've got to love it about David. David's a guy, that, I mean, he's flashing here. It's, it's, none of it's any good in terms of what he's, he's intending to do here. But with David, it wasn't about saving face or his pride or anything. It was all about what's right, what's wrong. And when you've been put down, sit down. He realizes, you're right, I was about to do something wrong. And even in front of his men, he was willing to admit it and thank God for sending her. And then to thank her for her counsel. Now that does a wonderful thing. You put yourself among that 400 that's following David. And you look and say, I follow a man that can admit that he makes a mistake. That goes a long way in, in terms of respect. David is also modeling before his men that in my kingdom, when I become king, whatever it is that you're overseeing, when you make a mistake and pride would try and tell you that you haven't made that mistake, you do what I've modeled to you. Admit that you were wrong. Give God the glory from keeping you from doing the wrong thing. And then thank the person that was God used to keep you from, from doing that wrong thing. And then David said to Abigail, Blessed, again, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you uh, this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you. He's he's so happy he can't say blessed enough at this point because he realizes how close he came. He's, He's coming back under the control of the Spirit now because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet you, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. And he's not saying in this kind of macho way, he's saying I would have done just about the stupidest thing that I could have done. Brutish. So David received from her hand what she had brought, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. You can go home safely. There will be no, we won't be raiding your uh, your camp or your, your house. And see how I have heeded your voice. I've respected your person. I've listened to you. Now, another thing is in that culture, to, for a man to show that kind of respect to a woman who publicly corrects him, though very, very tactfully, again, Dave, never, ever, ever despise any messenger that God sends our way to direct us away from madness or doing something stupid. He accepted whoever God wanted to send. Now Abigail went to Nabal and there he was. She goes back to the camp. He's holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Well, when you can take 200 loaves of bread and nobody misses it, you've got a lot of food going around. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. For what reason? He was snockered. He was very drunk. And therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. In general, it does very little good to talk to a drunk. So no use talking to him in this condition. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, he'd sobered up, and his wife then told him all of these things, how close he had come to death. And his heart died within him, 
and it became like a stone. Sounds like a heart attack. We don't know that, he, that this happened to him because when he heard the news, he was afraid and, uh, and realized how close he had come to dying or he was you know, livid over David doing this. We don't know what the emotional response was. But somehow, sounds like a heart attack or a stroke that he experiences. Probably a heart attack. And then it happened after about ten days that the Lord went ahead and struck Nabal and he died. And all of his I, me, and mine is gone with him. Can't enjoy it anymore. And then David, when he heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. And here's the reason who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. David looked at it and said, Here I am, I am, I got out ten days ahead of God. And I almost did the stupidest thing I could have ever done when God knew in just ten days He was going to take care of it all by his little lonesome. And David looked at that and said, God, thank you so much for leaving me out of this situation and not making it a part of my legacy. And so he praised the Lord uh, for this. For the Lord has returned wickedness on Nabal on his own head, and David sent and he proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. So evidently he noticed the beauty and he appreciated, obviously, her mind. And uh, in her great wisdom and understanding. I mean, they had connected, clearly. So he then takes, and he knows a woman that's being wasted, in, in essence. And she's free to marry. Her husband's dead. So he proposes to her. And then the servants of David, they came to Abigail at Carmel. And they spoke to her, saying, David has sent us to you to ask you to become uh, his wife. And she said, oh, no, I'm going to need about six months to really mourn the death of Nabal. No, she arose, she bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And so Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by, her five, uh, by five of her maidens, giving an indication of her wealth. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And so you think, put yourself in her place. And um, both of them are, at their core, very, very spiritual people. And she's going to go from being married to a fool uh, to a uh, married to the future king of Israel. It gets a little bit complicated, though, for her as David's wife, because David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel also as wife, and so both of them were his wife. Uh, Saul had, uh, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is from uh, Galim. And so Saul, uh, David had married Michael, and... Um, and when David fled for his life, uh, Saul did something to be hurtful both to Michael and also to David by having her remarry. And so David now technically has three wives here. And uh, God makes it a matter of record to tell us that that's what's happened here. It's not an endorsement of what it is that he is uh, doing here in these multiple marriages. David is going to... Uh, in, in what he's doing here in all of this, it's a, it's a violation of, of God's law. And uh, so 
he, uh, he's going to learn to really regret this. this lack of, he's got a lack of discipline in his life related to, uh, to women here in marriage. And then he also uh, has a, a, an unwillingness to obey the Lord in this area in his life. And uh, very, very tragically, that's going to catch up to him in his life and in his ministry. So uh, God's original intent for marriage was, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined not to his wives, but to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. And so we finish this chapter and we'll look to begin. Well, we, just, we might as well just go right into tomorrow. We're just four hours and 15 minutes away from it and finish off the book. So let's stand together, have the worship team come forward.